Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. From Autosport.com and Autosport Magazine, I'm Martin Lee, and this is the Autosport Podcast. That's another Le Mans in the books, and we are joined by uh, our men at the track. We're not at the track anymore. One of them's home, and one of them's not by quite a long way. We'll explain in a moment. Gary Watkins and Jamie Klein. First of all, Gary, uh, you drove through the night, so you are now back home in your own bed but not having had too much sleep. So the, the Le Mans workload continues for you. Absolutely. I'm not actually in my own bed at the moment, but I did, I did, I did snatch three and a half hours sleep last night. So uh, with a couple of hours or two or three hours during the race, uh, probably three or four the night of the race, uh, I'm, I'm certainly in deficit. But, but no, I'm home. I drove back. Uh, I caught uh, my Euro tunnel by the skin of my teeth. Uh, but it, it did actually leave 20 minutes early, so if I'd have missed it, I'd have been slightly bemused. But uh, I guess I guess that's nothing uh, to the to the uh, story that Jamie's going to tell us right now. <laughs> no, exactly, Jamie. We are recording this uh, Tuesday afternoon UK time. You are not home yet, uh, but you have got a nine-hour layover. Can you tell the audience why? Uh, I'll try and keep this as brief as possible because it would probably take up the whole podcast if I if I went to every single detail and all the sort of bad decisions that have uh, led me to where I am now. But for those that don't know, uh, I live in Tokyo, Japan. So I was uh, traveling from, from Paris to Tokyo via Doha in Qatar. Um, unfortunately, there was a problem with my PCR test certificate for returning to Japan. Uh, and the result was that I made the executive decision to not get on the second flight and instead rebook for the following day's flight while 
I got the, the certificate sorted out. So I'm now in the midst of that 24 hour wait. And so I think I'm on course for a new world record for longest trip home from the uh, Le Mans Press Centre. What is Japan like for, for COVID and lockdowns and, and life being back to normal or not? I mean, really, once you're there, once you get through the border, it's it's very, very open. OK, people are wearing face masks, but still, but, but that's more a sort of East Asian cultural thing than any kind of street requirement or anything. It's just getting in the country. They've always been super conservative with uh, with the rules, as many drivers that have tried to get over for Japanese racing over the last couple of years will, will be able to tell you. Uh, and still, even now, the rules are just loosening slightly, but the PCR test is still uh, a, a clear requirement that's uh, tripped me and no doubt many other people out. Jamie told me it's it, it's going to be, I think, was it 72 or 73 hour trip for you, wow. which beats my record. Uh, I I once went to San Luis in uh, Argent, Argentina for uh, FIA GTs and then uh, FIA GT World Championship, that short-lived uh, uh, diff- slightly different take on FIA GTs and it was multiple planes trips across cities and then a 300 kilometer drive after I got off the last plane and that I think the longest it ever took me was 36 hours. I have interest Gary you know you've been doing Le Mans for about 400 years now um, for our audience you go through this hell every single year to bring the audience this this coverage when does life get back to normal because now we're on tuesday you're still on three hours sleep you're still writing 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 coverage and articles at what point does it get back to kind of normal cadence for you and reporters who, who do this huge event well it's sort of s- slowing down for me now you know i've written the i've written my big reports i've written you know some some news stories for all sport magazine uh i've written uh, just written something for the web i've got a few more web things to uh, uh sort of tickle and then uh, i'm very much hoping to have a proper night's sleep tonight uh cook myself some nice dinner and uh Maybe maybe have a cheeky beer before oh, I go to bed. Very nice. And start saving up the energy for next time. Although I'm sure you survive on... I know you survive on adrenaline uh, over the last week or so that you have been uh, covering it. For the rest of us uh, have been uh, reading your wonderful reports. It was perhaps an event to remember for many reasons. So good to have a full crowd back. We'll talk about that between you guys in a moment. But first of all, you know, both cars, both Toyotas lead lap. Uh, at the end of the race, there really was very little between them, nothing to pick between them. And then a, you know, one of the famous, can you turn it off and turn it on again moments, which split the difference, really. Let's have a little chat about uh, the Toyotas, first of all. We got into Glickenhaus and Alpine in a minute between you two guys. But Gary, I'll start, I'll start with you. Um, how would you sum up that victory to, uh, this uh, this time? Toyota have been the only manufacturer uh competing in the top class at Le Mans. When I say manufacturer, I mean proper major automotive uh, manufacturer. And with that comes a lot of money that other people, the privateers or perhaps the smaller manufacturers or I, I, I'd like to call uh, Glickenhaus the garage east. He, he might not like it, but he's very much in the spirit of some of those uh, small timers who've uh, uh, been been to Le Mans over the years, you know, you know, throughout the the history of the race. So, but Toyota put on a show once again, has as they have consistently in the in the years since 2018 that they've been uh, the only 
the only manufacturer in the top class previously lmp1 of course now uh the class known as hypercar um yeah the two cars were evenly matched they swapped positions no fewer than 20 times wow not necessarily on the track rarely on the track normally in the pits uh partly because they they go off um they go off the same lap so you know a team doesn't want uh, both its cars in the pits at the same time you know just just because uh, it's easier you know you don't want one uh, wedging in the other or, or or whatever so and 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 it's all about those in and out laps and you know the undercut uh, and we saw the lead change multiple times there are actually only two lead changes on the track once as Rio Hirakawa who was in the winning car was exiting the pits and just got a little bit of traffic and Kobayashi swept past the other one uh, when um when the uh, number eight car was asked to uh, seed position, uh, I think it was Lopez in in the seven. Toyota have this what I call it the after you Claude uh, rule, which is basically if if a car behind is faster, the car ahead has to uh, has to uh, let let it through. But no, it was really close. And just talking to the drivers, they were saying, you know, it was there was just no let up. It was a high pressure environment. Uh, you know the drivers was talking about the risks they took to maintain the pace because it was it was a kind of race it was so close that you couldn't lose a tenth here or a tenth there we got deep into the 16th hour and then the number seven car which was leading at the time in uh, lopez's hands suddenly slowed between uh, indianapolis and arnage out of arnage he sort of swung to the right stopped and went through that re- reboot perspective procedure that we have seen many times before from toyota just uh going back to the monza round of the world endurance championship last year kobayashi had to do it sort of almost under the the old banking just before the uh ascari um chicane i thought he was looking for some shade at the time but it was actually to do to do a reboot basically you know these are complicated cars they're hybrid cars uh, they've got that front axle uh, motor generator unit there's a glitch uh and yeah turn it turn it on turn it uh <laughs> turn it off turn it back on again although for lopez it was a bit more complicated than that uh because he had to uh when he got back to the pits he had to do that recycle another two times which explained why he lost um much more than he might have done uh, and actually he dropped nearly three minutes back mm. Uh, at that point it was slightly difficult to judge because obviously the other car was then into the pits for a scheduled stop shortly afterwards but yeah he lost he lost a lot of time so yeah it was that on and off three times but i beat that record in my uh, hotel after the race because the wi-fi was extremely dodgy and i reckon my laptop went off and on uh probably about uh at least a dozen times a little bit less pressure for you as well i'm <laughs> sure a very high pressure environment though um jamie your thoughts on that intense battle for the lead and maybe a word as well on the drivers uh and just how successful Bohemian and hartley are now and of course fifth japanese win uh for hirakawa as well which i'm sure you can you can speak to as well given where you are based yeah that's right i was i was a little bit uh surprised to discover that actually uh it's a fourth win for Sebastian Buemi and a, and a third for Brennan Hartley, which makes them their respective most uh, successful drivers from their respective countries, Switzerland and New Zealand um, in, in those cases. And also, of course, like you mentioned, Hidakawa following in the footsteps of uh, Masanori Sakia, Saint Giada, and of course, his two Toyota colleagues, Kazuki Nakajima and uh, Kami Kobayashi. 
And yeah, on here, Kara, of course, I've been following his exploits in Super Formula and Super GT pretty closely the last couple of years. Um, it was really his 2020 season that prompted Toyota to give Hirakawa another look because don't forget he was part of that program in 16 and 17, did the European Le Mans series, but he, he didn't perform so well in what was then the, the TSO 50 hybrid. He was overlooked for the third seat at Le Mans in 17, um, but he went, but you know, to Hirakawa's credit, he went away, you know, just, uh, just um, got his head down and really focus on the job at hand. That's a, that's perhaps a decision that might have, you know, broke some Japanese drivers that may be a, a little bit more mentally fragile. But Hidekawa bounced back with that year's Super GT title win with Nick Cassidy uh, for the, the Team Tom's uh, Lexus squad. Those guys probably should have had at least two more championships uh, over the following years. Of course, a very dramatic moment at the end of the 20 season where in, in true Toyota Le Mans style, Hidekawa ran out of fuel exiting the final corner on the final lap. That was such a heartbreaking moment for him. Um, and Super Formula as well, he was he really should have won that year's championship. So that was what prompted uh, Toyota to give him the test. They were obviously looking at replacing Nakajima with another Japanese driver. Hidekawa was by far the best candidate. And I have to say, I think Hidekawa did a very, very solid job um, on his first uh, Lasaf experience in the top class. It was usually him and Kobayashi on track at the same time just because Toyota cycled through their driver crews at the same time. Um, and it, whilst it would probably not be fair to say he was quicker than Kobayashi, um, it probably wouldn't be fair to expect that either considering Kobayashi's enormous experience. And I think he, he just did exactly the job he needed to do. He was you know, almost right there on pace with the other two, Sebastian Buemi and Brendan Hartley and you know, listening to those guys sing his praises afterwards as well, I think was a it was uh, you know good to hear that they they really have uh, taken them uh, taken him under their wing as the as the third driver in the number eight replacing Nakajima, of course. So yeah, it's a real it's a nice redemption arc for Hidakawa from from rejection five years ago to the top step of the podium. And uh, I, I suspect if if Toyota sticks around at the moment, it could be the first of many for him. And, and, and Gary, for our, our audience as well, it'd be nice to, to actually talk about how intense that battle is for a 24-hour endurance race. Not only what the drivers go through, but for the but for the team, for Toyota, to get those two cars to the finish line, just like as an achievement in itself, uh, I think a lot of people might not appreciate what a massive undertaking that is. The, the thing... Uh for the for the team was must have been having to watch that battle because you know they they were just you know there were there was nothing left on the table by by either either crew uh you know and 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 that's um the drivers are putting putting themselves in uh high risk situations you know it wasn't until you know the number seven car had its problem that the number eight car could could back off and have a margin up until then you know you're taking risks in traffic you're pushing hard all the time that must have been the hardest thing um uh for the sort of the team bosses and everyone everyone in the pit box just watching their drivers you know taking risks in traffic and just just you know pushing it as hard as they can could all the time i mean obviously reliability you know we all know that Toyota has had some dramatic last gasp failures. It made a habit of it over the years, you know, going way back into the in into the nineties, uh, and then with this program, which of course began in two thousand and twelve, you know, with the uh, 
with the uh, the, the LMP1 hybrid uh, programs. So there's always, you know, they were confident of their reliability. But as they say, you know, the problems you have, you go away and solve. It's the ones uh, that you haven't experienced before that are the ones that uh, that bite you, which was the case last year when they came up with some ingenious fixes to uh, overcome a problem that, that they'd sort of had before at Monza, but it wasn't actually quite the same problem. It was a sort of, you know, a, a slightly different take on, on the problem. And it yeah. was related to uh, fuel pressure and uh, the the fuel filter becoming uh, blocked. And they came up with an amazing, you know, a series of amazing fi- fixes that allowed them to uh, take victory in the first year of the uh GR010 uh, hybrid Le Mans hypercar. Mm. And it's interesting what you say about the risks that they were taking, particularly uh, as night fell as well. And it's it's the real kind of, as you're watching it, the real hold your breath moments as well. The trust between the drivers is just crazy because there's no, I mean, no quarter given at times, but also they had to take those risks. And and we did see some incidents as well. Maybe we we'll talk about those, about those a little bit later. They weren't being risk averse. I was amazed at watching it. It was just incredible. Well, one thing we should remember: we're in the new era of uh, the top class of sports car racing in the WEC. Is that the the hybrid power of uh, that now just from the front axle isn't the sort of overtaking tool that it once was you know the sort of push to pass if you like has disappeared you're not allowed to use the power in that way so uh, i th- i think the, the 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 risks they have to take is, is greater now and of course the uh you know le mans hypercars are s- slower significantly slower than the old lmp1 cars so the sort of performance differential differential particularly with the lmp2 cars uh, is much much closer, and you know it's been an ongoing debate since the beginning of 2021. What you know the the um, the performance gap between the two classes, and Toyota saying it needs to be more. The organisers, the ACO and the FIA, struggling to slow the P2s down. You know, weight, power, aero coming off a little bit more came off uh, in the aero stakes this year. So yeah, I think. Um, the kind of risks the drivers are taking this year is much greater than in the uh, LMP1 era. Mm. Um, Jamie, can we talk a little bit about Glickenhaus? Because with all the changes to the hybrid deployment, when you can use it, the reduced top speed, um, why why couldn't Glickenhaus take the fight to the Toyota? Still getting a podium, of course. Why was that? Well, I think it comes down to consistency i think we've seen you know all the talk in the build-up was that glickenhaus and well alpine also but that's a kind of separate story that we'll deal with uh, in a moment but certainly the, the other the only other lmh car on the grid besides the toyota was you know a match on pace and that's true up to a certain point but that doesn't really mean much if you, the glickenhaus can only go the same speed as a toyota you know one lap out of a whole stint of, of 12 laps or 13 laps you really need that that just metronomic consistency and never dropping out of the you know the Toyotas are always almost always in the 28s and 29s um, three minutes 28 29s um, during their stints except for when they had the odd clear lap on fresh tires and they're able to go a little bit quicker but the Glickenhaus just it just isn't quite capable of the same you know sheer consistency and that's you know for a number of reasons not least of all that you know Glickenhaus is a much smaller organisation. 
you know, without the hybrid as well, it can't really be expected to, to produce that kind of metronomic pace. Um, so then you could argue, should should Glickenhaus be allowed a bit more BOP to sort of give it the edge over a lap, but um, at the expense of uh, consistency? There was that kind of debate when the when it was the Rebellion was the main uh, opposition to Toyota, because there were some times that Rebellion you know, out-qualified Toyota um, during the sort of, I think, the 1920 season when we had that ridiculous um, success, uh, success handicap formula, which I'm sure... Gaz fondly remembers um, tearing his hair out trying to calculate. I can assure you. The... I can assure you. I don't m- remember it with fond memories. <laughs> but it was it was a kind of similar debate then. It was the rebellion was 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 almost allowed to outpace the Toyota over a lap because they it was kind of common knowledge that uh, the, the car wouldn't be capable of, of, of going with Toyota over a stint, and of course couldn't go as long um, over a stint either. So. So I think the Glickenhaus. I think you know they came they came away with three and four P three and P four. That the the leading car had almost no issues. Just a, just a small sensor issue right at the start of the race that cost them a couple of minutes. And uh, you know Pascal Vasselon said after the race that you know probably on pure pace the Glickenhaus was only you know two laps down on the Toyota. They were five in the end. Uh, although the, the fifth one came like very late in the day, I think sometime in the final half an hour or 20 minutes even. Um, so yeah, I think you've got to, you've got to take your hats off the Glicken house. I mean, to come, to come along and, and to even produce a car that can, I know it's a, it's a bop formula now and the, the aero is restricted and all the rest of it, but to produce a car that can in theory match the Toyotas at least is, is a huge achievement. And I think, uh, yeah, the, the, the podium position for the, for the leading Glickenhaus there of uh, it was uh, Ryan Briscoe, uh, Richard Westbrook, and Frank Meyer was, was richly deserved and a, and a great uh, a great sort of subplot to, to the week. I will finish off by talking about Alpine and want to forget Gary. But uh, how do you think the team will go away feeling? I think they were disappointed that they didn't have a chance. Uh, and again, that's that was down to the BOP. Uh, the BOP has sort of shifted dramatically over the uh, since Le Mans last year. They were 40 horsepower down uh, at the start of the week uh, from the level that they were allowed last last year. Uh, they weren't on the pace at the test day nor in the first day of qualifying. There was a bit of a BOP change for the second day of practice and qualifying. Lapierre suddenly found uh, five seconds. Uh, and then the next day, Uh, Not only did the rulemakers, that's the ACO and the FIA, remove the little bit of help they'd been given, they actually took some more power away uh, from them. So um, the ACO and the FIA never explain uh, their BOP decisions, but the only interpretation you can reach is that uh, that Alpine got a slap slap on the wrist for for sandbagging uh, or for what the uh, rulemakers believed was sandbagging. There can, there can be no other interpretation of it. Lapierre, after, after he'd put the car third on the grid, said, well, you know, we reckon the, the, new, the extra bit of power we've got, which was nine horsepower, was worth between five and seven tenths. We just got a good lap. We didn't mess up like Toyota. You know, we didn't have traffic like Toyota did. Toyota also had track limits uh, violations. Lapierre said, "I got, I got a tow," uh, but that's not how uh, the rulemakers interpreted it. And then the next day, they um, 
Alpine lost what they'd been given. Then in the race, they 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 just had a, a, a shocker. Basically, they you know they had t- they, the car was in the garage for two technical problems, and then Vaxivier uh, put it off uh, in the Porsche curves, uh, hit the wall on on uh, on Sunday. So uh, they they were absolutely nowhere. We heard on the preview podcast uh, from you know Gary his thoughts on next year, but Jamie, it'd be good to pick your brains actually um, just before Le Mans. But after our preview podcast, Ferrari showing off their little teaser on Instagram 50 years after they last competed in the, uh, the top class. They're back next year and, and more competition coming as well. So let's, let's just get your thoughts on what next season is going to look like with the hypercar class. Yeah, well, of course, you don't have to wait very long for the first glimpse of the future because the next round of the WEC at Monza will, will see the, the new Peugeot 9X8 um, take to the track. And that's going to be really interesting to see how they get on there with that radical no rear wing design. I know uh, Gary's been been down uh, for, for Peugeot's sort of little pre-season launch event, getting all the, 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 the gory details there. But, uh, but yeah, of course, we have the LMDH cars as well from Porsche, which there's still, I think, an outside chance we might see that car before the end of the year, perhaps at Bahrain. Um, we have also the Cadillac to look forward to. We got a, a first proper look at that car uh, in the last week. So, yeah, there's going to be a lot of cars. Um, there's going to be a lot of cars that, that are, in theory, capable of fighting for the win, which is going to be for the first time since 2017. We don't go into the race pretty much knowing the outcome already. It, it's Would you say Toyota's the, the, would be the favourite? Well, that partly depends if they build a new car, which has been the, the kind of the hot rumour of the of the past few weeks, although the Japanese manufacturer won't confirm anything on that front. Um, but we, we understand that, that likely the next year or the year after, there's probably going to be a successor to the GR010 uh, on its way. Um, so it's, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be really fascinating to see how that all unfolds. And I think, uh, you know, it's, it, it's a bit of a cliche to call it a new golden era, but I think it's, it's hard to think of what else to call it really, because we're going to have even more manufacturers than we had during the, the sort of the height of the hybrid um, the hybrid deals between uh, Porsche, Audi and Toyota and very briefly Nissan, although they were never really part of the conversation at the front. So, um, so yeah, I don't know what else you can, can really use to describe it other than just a very, very exciting time in sports car racing on the horizon. Yeah, they've made a, they've made a big thing about the no rear wing um, and that is that's going to get them all the publicity. In terms of the FIA uh, and I'm guessing the ACO, it's hard to say until we see these battles on track. But as we get closer now, do you think all the all the, the parts and the regulations have come together to bring teams back uh, and to and to get that that competitive racing? Are they are you pretty satisfied with how it's shaping up? On the evidence of Le Mans this year, no is the answer. <laughs> okay. uh, unfortunately. Glickenhaus is a minnow, you know, it struggles to get the most out of its car every single lap. And that's what manufacturers uh, can do with all the testing they do, with all the simulation, etc., etc. In terms of fastest laps, Olivier's Pla, Olivier Pla's fastest lap in the Glickenhaus was, uh, I think, a hundredth of a second off the uh, uh, fastest of the, uh, by, by, uh, by a Toyota driver. Yeah, the Glickenhaus is a rear drive car all the all the power from the uh from its turbocharged engine you know goes through the rear wheels next year we have the lmdhs which are also rear wheel drive cars uh they have a hybrid as well but all the power is going through the rear axle the toyota of course is a four wheel drive car it has uh, um 
the hybrid system at the front. Um, obviously, the effect of that has has been mitigated by the the new deployment speed that we talked a hell of a lot about, probably too much about on the last uh, uh, podcast. You know, so so is it apples and oranges that they're trying to uh, balance here? And certainly that was one of the reasons for the mitigation of the benefits of four-wheel drive is to sort of try to bring these different uh, types of car into the, into the same window. You know, I, I don't think it's going to be a bed of roses. I think BOP is going to be talked about a lot, especially at the start of next year when the LMDHs arrive. Uh, in theory, there shouldn't be a lot of uh, politic politicking and lobbying because it's a data-driven uh, system. So the numbers go in the top, you turn the handle and the BOP comes out. That's what we're told. Uh, whether it's true or not, uh, I don't know. You know, but I'm I I don't I don't see that if um, Porsche are not doing very well and they perceive that uh, the BOP is not. Uh, and they perceive the BOP is against them. I don't see Roger Penske not storming uh, into the smoke-filled room and uh, jumping up and down. You know, I you know I think there's going to be uh, a lot going on in those smoke-filled rooms over the over the winter and over the first couple of years of our new golden era. Well. Uh, we'll wait and see to be a fly on the wall, eh? Uh, we know we're half an hour in, and so let's let, let's crack on and work our way down um, the field a little bit. Let's talk a bit a bit about LMP2, um, Jamie, and how it was won by such a large margin. If you can explain that, yeah. Well, the Jota the Jota squad of uh, Antonio Felix da Costa, uh, Will Stevens, and Roberto Gonzalez really, I think, from more or less the first hour, they were they were established in the lead after the first cycle of stops. I think Robert Kubica briefly um, briefly swept into lead as carnage unfolded behind um, in, in turn one, at least in the LMPT ranks with uh, yeah United Autosports and WRT. Well, really, United Autosports and WRT losing three cars between them in, in that in that one incident. As far as the battle for the overall win was concerned, at least, um, so that immediately put yeah the the, the Prema car in the lead ahead of the Jota car. But the yeah the Jota machine was was the more was the quicker. Um, it had the luck with the slow zones. I think it yeah, gained significant chunks of time with the slow zones. Prema was a little bit unlucky with a with an early a puncher that put them off strategy, which I think didn't help their case because usually the car that's ahead is the one that that tends to gain from the slow zones uh, most of the time. So they, they tend to favour the, the leaders and not the not the pursuers. Um, and I think more or less that was you know that was pretty much it. I think uh, you know they just kept extending their lead. You know Gonzalez did a fantastic job as the silver rated driver in that car. I know he's got a lot of WEC experience now, but. Even so, uh, it wasn't as if he was um, he was he was uh, struggling to, to keep the pace. He was uh, you know he was holding holding steady during his stints, and uh, and I don't think there was really anything uh, any other teams had had the the answer. I think maybe the only other car that you know looked like it had the pace potentially was the thirty one WRT uh, machine that, that that caused that turn one pileup. The, the Rene Rast Rene Rast was at the wheel. Robin Frines was was flying later in his stint, but then of course he, he crashed at uh, Indianapolis, trying to make up the lost ground. So, um, so yeah, that was a, a, a shame that we didn't get to see Joe to put under a little bit more pressure. Um, and yeah, there was just uh, no one really left to 
to take the fight to them. Um, they did lose a bit of time getting stuck in the, the pit lane with a red light at the end. Um, but, you know, that they were a lap ahead by this point. So they, they still had a, a lead, I think, upwards of two minutes. And then from there, it was just a case of managing it to the end. Yeah. I think it was a, a, a tactical masterclass by them. You know, we say they got lucky. And yes, there is an element of uh, luck with the slow zones. And if anyone doesn't understand the jargon, a slow zone is basically a virtual safety car in in sort of just think Formula One there, virtual safety car, but for a portion of the track. The, the, the eight and a half mile Le Mans circuit is divided up into eight and uh, it can be a local uh, yellow, basically, where everyone has to slow down to 80 kilometers an hour in that slow zone. So it's all about how many times you go through it. So some and it just. As as Jamie says, you know, the lead car normally benefit, benefits and it's all about separation. And the further the cars are apart, the more likely there are to be winners and losers. Think there was a slow zone at the start because uh, after the f- after the start line incident mm. involving the LMP2 guys. But they, it didn't really affect every anything because everyone was together, a pack. They just started. But as the sort of diff, as the field opens up, that then you get um then you get winners and losers. And as we said, the car in front is often uh, the winner. Yeah. And then there's a bigger separation between the cars. And then it becomes a bigger winner. So it's sort of self-perpetuating. And we saw that in the early, uh, the early part of the race. But, you know, they, they put themselves in the position to benefit. It's interesting that they only gave Gonzalez a couple of stints uh, before it got dark. And then they, then they put, uh, then it was uh, to Costa and Stevens all the way through the night. And then um, Gonzalez got back uh, in again in the morning he has to do six hours as the silver rated driver but there are also times you know when they were strategically very strong there was there was a moment in the race when there were two slow zones at once so that meant that virtual safety car uh protocol was in place in two of the eight two of the eight Mm. zones so that's almost a safety car you know in terms of the sort of the overall lap time it just so happened that that sort of worked with their pit strategy they brought the car in did a service and they gained again there so you know yes they were lucky but they also made their own luck and they were tactically very 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 strong and then a quick word jamie on Pramer, a team that's been around 35 36 years or so legendary in single seaters but this year um having a go that sounds a bit patronising, doesn't it? Having a go at endurance racing, uh, their first Le Mans, and doing actually a, a pretty decent job. How impressed were you with them? I was very impressed, of course, with uh, P2 there for Robert Kubica, um, Lorenzo Colombo, and Louis Delatraz. Interestingly, two-thirds of last year's kind of moral victor lineup. That was uh, the car that Kubica and Delatraz shared with uh, Yifei Yi that broke down on the last lap, heartbreakingly. Um, but yeah, I mean... Prema, as we've, as we just, as you mentioned, is it's such a famous name in single seater racing, and uh, it's not for no reason that they've had the success that they've had. You know, when when you have an organisation that, that's just uh, that's 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 just that high quality. Same with WRT that that been you know dominating GT3 racing for many years and, and came and did a very similar job uh, when they joined the LMP2 ranks. I don't think it was really a big surprise that that Prema. Um, that Prima did the same thing. I think perhaps the disadvantage they faced was was just running a single car, 
because you know now we have these you know me me and me and gary were discussing this at the track we have these kind of multi-car powerhouse teams now in the form of jota uh united autosports and wrt which had three cars uh, out on track so uh, they were really strong numerically although two of those didn't get beyond the first corner unscathed but yeah Prema with its single entry just uh Kibitza just drove past everybody at the start okay they didn't quite have the pace of the jota car they slipped back uh, I think even without the puncher that put them off sequence, I don't think they were they were in a position to match the Jota on pace. And then, as we mentioned earlier, those slow zones just uh, just uh, letting the Jota car get away. And you, you probably wouldn't ex- necessarily expect uh, that that driver lineup to be maybe quite on the pace either, because, just because you know Decosta is one of the elite talents in LMP2, and Colombo was doing his uh, his first Le Mans as well. So. Uh, so yeah, I think it, it it was a very solid effort, and I think they can be very proud of P two. I know Kibitza was frustrated because he's only interested in the win. Said if he'd won it the year before, he wouldn't have come back. I briefly managed to catch a word with him in the paddock and asked him, "So does this mean you'll be back again next year?" And he just sort of said, "Yeah, wait and see." Uh, so I think I think he's still hungry for it. Um, but yeah, and of course, don't forget, I think Prema is 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 positioning themselves for the. You know, for the forthcoming hypercar era, of course, very strong links to Ferrari. Um, I don't, I don't think they were just doing this for fun. Of course, there's a lot of organisations that have been positioning themselves for for the upcoming new era, and uh, Prema, you know, is is no exception in that case. And I think we uh, obviously close links with Ferrari, but uh, my money's on them running a Lamborghini. Lamborghini won't be around with their LMDH until 2024, but. Uh, that's that's my money. If you if you want a fiver, uh, let me know. I'll uh, have a little bet. And the other thing to say about Prima is, you know, um, they weren't in a position to put pressure on Jota at the end after Jota lost their one lap cushion with the safety car. Uh, unfortunately, or unfor- unfortunately for Prima, they had a, an overheating problem and they sort of had to back it off a bit. And uh, the the team boss Rene Rosan was very complimentary about. Uh, Kubica's efforts in bringing the car home without losing uh, too much, keeping the pace up whilst uh, nursing the engine. So, and and of course maintaining second place. So that's something else that uh, need, needs to be mentioned. That that you know perhaps they could have made a race of it after the the Jota car came back onto the lead lap. So yes, plenty in Prima's alumni phone book that they could always call upon, whether it's Charles Leclerc or uh, Mick Schumacher. Uh, or even uh, Oscar Piastri, who's uh, twiddling his thumbs these days. Anyway, let's uh, let's talk about you know, and actually, uh, let's talk about the start line before we you know we kind of gone around before we talk about GTE Pro and GTM. Um, let's talk about that that clip, which is the one that goes around the world. It's the cars across start finish. It's the you know the jets in the sky, and then there's a coming together. I'll wheel out the cliche first before you have to to finish first. First, you have to finish. And come on, lads, first corner's not the place to do it. Uh, Gary, what did you make of that? I just found it very weird. Uh, weird in the way Rene Rast sort of suddenly moved left and tagged Will Owen. Um, but weird that there were four cars abreast there when the cars are meant to be in formation across... The start line and the start line and the finish line are not at the same place at Le Mans. There's a couple of hundred yards be- be- between them. So it, it's, it looked to me that multiple people jumped the start or at least didn't follow procedures because otherwise there wouldn't have been four cars side by side or, you know, roughly side by side. You know, Habsburg on the outside, 
then then Owen, then Rast, then Kubica. At Le Mans now, the um, each class starts together, so it's it. There are four mini grids, if you like, and there's a small gap between uh, the hypercars and the uh, P P two cars because uh, the um, the number thirty one WRT car was on P two pole position and it was sixth. It was actually on a row on its own, so it was sort of a row ahead of the other cars, which is why I'm sort of slightly confused uh, about what happened. Habsburg um, actually got fined for missing the uh, little driver's briefing that they have for the the top starters in each class. He got fined 500 euros. I presume he had to go uh, and then have his own briefing uh, and, and, uh, and his bottom smacked. Um, But yeah, I don't really understand yeah, it was just a very weird situation. And uh, yes, he made a dramatic move. But what were the other cars doing there? You know, it, 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 it was just a really weird situation. All right, last five minutes, we'll cover off GTE Pro then. Uh, Jamie, I'll come to you. A race of high drama, uh, rather than the kind of classic that we've seen in past years, but still plenty of uh, spills and thrills uh, to watch if you were following them. Yeah, it was it was one of those races where we didn't see too much nose to tail action. It was all very based on individual cars being kind of comfortably out front and then having a drama that that put them either on the back foot or out of the race completely uh, in some cases. So you have to say that at least on pure pace, it's it's the race that really got away from Corvette, um, which it would have been a fitting way to end this kind of GTE era which is also kind of a, a legacy continuation of, of the gt1 era which was you know corvette was very much a part of as well so i think corvette would have been a really popular win and i think that the you know the, the media center was pretty uh everybody in the media center was in shock when we saw the images of alexander sims's number 64 car in the barriers along the the Molzan straight having been just taken out by Francois Perodo's uh, LMP2 car, and, you know, Perodo was very apologetic for the incident, but yeah, you know, it, it was, was brutal, wasn't it? It was, it was, it was pretty brutal. Yeah, it was just one of those where Perodo was too busy looking at another car that he was racing against. I think uh, it was the the Algarve Pro car just jinked slightly, very slightly to the left, which sort of made Perodo do that with interest, and then straight into the path of Sims, who obviously. He wasn't really watching or thought he was already clear of. And then Sims, you know, nothing he could do. And I did speak to Sims uh, yesterday. He was very, very magnanimous about it. Um, but of course, it was the last GT Pro race. So there's no, there's going to be no chance to avenge that defeat. That was it. Um, I think that makes it, you know, that's what that's what Sims said. And I think it was applied to all the, the members of the Corvette stable. The press release put out by the American manufacturer just simply said no words because there were none it was it was their race to lose at that point so the beneficiary of that was porsche in the end it was the 91 car of uh, jimmy bruni Rich, uh, richard leeds and um fred mcawiki that came away with the win probably mispronouncing most of those um it was their first win in the WEC since 2019 bizarrely so that was a, a bit of a statistic statistical anomaly that got corrected there um, there was a there was a scene where they were racing the 51 Ferrari quite hard, but um, the, the 51 Ferrari had a puncture. Um, they didn't lose too much time from it. It happened at the Porsche curb, so they were quite close to the end of the lap anyway. But it just it just took the took the needle out of that battle. And to be honest, 
the Porsche had the pace over the Ferrari anyway. And, you know, Mako was really pressuring. It was Pigweedy in the car at the time. Um, Pigweedy went across the, the, the track at, at Dunlop Chicane at one point, didn't get a penalty for it, miraculously. Um, I think if there hadn't been the puncture, Mako would have found a way past sooner or later and Porsche, and we would have ended up with the same result, albeit maybe with a slightly more exciting finish. Um, so, yeah, that was how it ended. Porsche on the top step, then two Ferraris, two and three. The other Porsche that was also leading but had a puncture uh, came home P4. Uh, and that was the story of the race. Corvette not getting either of its cars to the finish, which is just such a shame for both of them. The other car had a suspension failure quite early on. No, absolutely, absolutely. And also, Sims, one of the nicest people uh, in motorsport. Not that that should matter as well, but I just heartbroken uh, for him. Last time I saw him, I was at a le- some sort of electric car festival and he was just kind of mooching around on his day off of work. I was like, what are you doing here? Oh, I'm having a look round, really. Uh, so, uh, but anyway, um, Gary, anything you want to add uh, to that? For me, there was a little bit of sadness. This was the last year of GTE Pro. It was confirmed uh, uh, at the traditional ACO press conference on Friday. We all knew it. Uh, it was actually the subject of a World Council vote last summer. It was just never publicised. Uh, so, yeah, we all knew GTO. This was the last hurrah for a class that's just provided us with such drama, such brilliant racing. The sadness for me on this last outing for GTE Pro was twofold. One was we didn't get a good race. It was deserving of a good race to go out on a high. Uh, and even if cars hadn't been crashing left right and center uh tires hadn't been giving out on porsches and ripping their nose off um the uh even if the ferrari hadn't have had its puncture at the end with per guidi as jamie was talking about um it wouldn't have been a close race because there was a clear hierarchy the corvette was quickest the porsche was next quickest and the uh ferrari was next was the slowest and so there was there wasn't really you know there wasn't really a, that kind of you know all no holds barred racing that we we've seen so many times before uh, absolutely absolutely and then we'll just finish off uh, some closing words jamie from you on the gte am class yeah gtm was a surprisingly entertaining class this year i would say at first it looked like porsche couldn't lose they were just miles quicker than anybody i think they were one two three four five six even at one point in the opening hour or so they just had the speed over the ferrari and the astons um when it was all the pro drivers that started the race um but uh but just one by one um the various porsches you know when the when the bronze rated drivers often got in the car that was when they started to have their moments in the gravel or in the barriers or a couple had technical issues um and and in the end it was only really the the, the number 79 WeatherTech racing porsche um that, that had a a clean ish run but that uh, that car probably probably should have won because it had the fastest bronze driver in the form of thomas merrill who i think he's a driver that a lot of us europeans didn't really know about um he's a 32 year old trans am racer with a bronze rating but he was very very quick he was by far and away the fastest bronze driver he was faster than Cooper McNeil he was silver rated um, and and probably they should have won but there were a couple of mistakes from McNeil and Merrill uh, who was at his first Le Mans it should be added and that just opened the door for the TF Sport Aston of Ben Keating Marco Sorensen and Henrique Chavez and they got a little bit lucky with the, with the safety car that put them a couple of safety car trains ahead of their rivals and then from there it was a case of just managing it to the end but I think uh 
it was a com- it wasn't all luck because I think Ben Keating did an absolutely spectacular job. You know, he was he wasn't the fastest bronze because that was Merrill, but he was the cleanest bronze, the most consistently fast bronze. Um, and of course, he was disqualified from this race three years ago. So it's really nice for him to get the win that he should have had back then, when he he and his teammates in the the, the Riley Ford just absolutely blew everybody away and got thrown out by the scrutineers. So that was a nice redemption arc there. So yeah, it was that was that was the story of GTM. Really, Porsche should have won it uh, a bit like Corvette should have won it in in pro. And um, in the end, it was it was the more it was just the car that had less trouble with a bit of luck thrown in for good measure. I think it's all worth. I think it had the most balanced lineup as well. Uh, you know, the WeatherTech car had this amazing bronze. And it's pro. Uh, Julian Andlauer was was sensational. Cooper McNeil as a silver just wasn't very good. He was, you know, half the time doing bronze type pace. You know, I'm sure if you look at the average averages, Keating would be significantly faster than him. Uh, so I think the, the the sort of that the that well balanced lineup in the TF car were, was significant. Uh, and it's also worth pointing out that they had a steering issue at the end. Uh, Sorensen was uh, reporting that the uh, the the, uh, the wheels weren't doing uh, what he was telling them with the steering wheel, so there was sort of some kind of issue. And of course, if they'd have chosen to change it, you know, a, cha- a steering wreck takes probably you know, it, well, it doesn't take seconds to change. I should think it's the better <laughs> yeah. part of an hour or something like that. Uh, uh, but anyway. Even if it's even if it was three minutes, you know that's still the race gone for them. Um, so basically, he had to. He said it was fairly hairy out there and a bit stressful, um, but you know he stayed out on track with a an, um, a known problem. Uh, it all held together and they won won the class and deservedly so. And that's brilliant result for the TF's sport team. They're a relatively newcomer to this racing but they've done what they've done um, in just all the sports car championships they've done they've won big races and championships you know this was their second uh, second uh, Le Mans victory so very impressive absolutely second in three years very very good and, uh, and, and and Lawrence Stroll smiling as well nobody wants an upset Lawrence Stroll let's face it at Aston Martin although you know what I've seen his boat I'm not meant to call it a boat probably like Palace and I'd always be smiling if I had that floating around somewhere. Anyway, that's probably a good place to leave it. That's our hour. Oh, before we go, Gary, uh, I noticed the stands were once again full of your fan club. Good to be back with a crowd at the circuit. Absolutely, yeah. The, for me, one of the best bits of Le Mans is, is the build-up to the race. You know, the crowd, um, you know, the grandstand seats filling up, but also that terracing in front of, in front of them uh, on the start-finish straight. Uh, yeah, it's just, yeah, it, it. I find it quite, I love it and I hate it as well because it's sort of, it, the, the old stomach title, uh, the old stomach titans and you, you know you're coming up to the start of, you know, one of the biggest motor races anywhere in the world. Uh, yeah, and yeah, it's looking out the window, seeing the people, then, you know, just, just seeing people out, out and about, you know, we all go and watch for a little bit uh, up at some of the corners and just sort of standing shoulder to shoulder with fans is just is just good, you know. Uh, Absolutely. A great place to leave it. Gentlemen, thank you for your time today. We are f- 
We are blessed to have you two legends join us, and not only on the podcast, but to read your words for autosport.com, uh, motorsport.com as well, our sister publication. And if you are going to be buying, whether you subscribe to Autosport magazine already, there's going to be some wonderful, wonderful coverage. The pictures I've seen that we're putting in are glorious. Uh, read the words from these chaps as well, and make sure you stay tuned. Uh, not only their social profiles, but also uh, what they're writing for autosport.com and motorsport.com gentlemen thank you enjoy your sleep slash travel home Uh, thank you for listening to the autosport podcast Uh, we'll be back this weekend as formula one heads to montreal and the canadian gp we'll see you then mary redeemed a fifty thousand dollar cash prize playing chumba casino this year i was only playing for fun so winning this was a dream come true chumba casino is america's number one social casino experience it's serious fun with over 80 casino style games to choose from you too could win life-changing amounts of cash be like mary log on to chumbacasino.com and give them a whirl that's chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary void or prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details the voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner Hey, what's up, guys? This is MMA fighter Clay Guida, and I'm not afraid of anyone or anything, but losing my hair was an entirely different kind of fight. So if you're suffering from hair loss like I was, then you got to check out my boys at Bosley. Pound for pound, they are the champions of hair restoration. That's why I turned to Bosley to get my hair back. The entire Bosley team was so professional and kind from start to finish. All it took was a simple one-day procedure, and I was on my way back to rocking my full hair again. So take it from me. Don't wait if you are thinning or receding. I'm so thrilled with my results, I just wish I would have went to Bosley sooner. It's time to finally knock out hair loss because the best is yet to come. Check out Bosley today. When MMA fighter Clay Guida was losing his hair, he trusted Bosley to get it back. Now it's your turn. Get a free information kit, plus get a $250 off gift card when you text CLAY to 203203. Text CLAY to 203203. Or go to bosley.com. That's bosley.com. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.